For cultural nationalism, for it to become a kind of a legitimate ideology at any point of time in the history, uh, in the political history of a particular nation, that must be really based on easily discernible cultural artifacts. Right, I mean, if you have a kind of British cultural nationalism, that must be based on cultural artifacts that are common to the kind of British Isles. And that cultural heritage must therefore be transformed into this kind of a national ideology. In Bhutan's yeah. case, when Bhutan was undergoing political development from the 1950s onwards, with the reign of the third Druk Gyalpo onwards, there was a shift in the uh, political trajectory of Bhutan. And Bhutan increasingly became a much, much more nationalist country with a well-defined national character and a kind of well-defined citizenship laws, who is a Bhutanese, who is not, what is national culture, what is not, what is national language, what is not, what is the kind of national school of Buddhism and what schools of Buddhism are not the national ones. All of these began to be defined from that period onwards up to a point in the first decade of the 21st century when Bhutan has successfully transitioned into a democracy. Bhutan's uh, path uh, towards democracy kind of uh, goes along Bhutan's transformation from a kind of feudal state into a much more modern state with much more modern ideologies playing a part in the consolidation and the integration of the nation. And it is remarkable to see how democratization, decentralization on one hand, and the development of a centralized ideological nationalism that is very top-down and state-centered, on the other hand, happens almost simultaneously, till in 2008, when the first parliamentary elections are organized in Bhutan, and Bhutan successfully transitioned into what many people call a semi-authoritarian kind of a democracy, although we'll talk about uh, the extent to which it is democracy or not later. Now, Bhutan is a country that is uh, not very well known throughout the Western world, let alone, you know, uh, uh, anywhere uh, other than uh, South Asia for that matter. In South Asia, Bhutan is often referred to as that kind of uh, passage to Tibet, a passage to kind of China. In uh, Indian security circles, Bhutan is really referred to as the kind of security buffer that was once created by the British Grand Strategy to uh, delineate its imperial borders with that of the Russian imperial borders on one hand and the Chinese uh, imperial borders on the other hand. So Bhutan has always been this kind of an afterthought whenever talking about international politics or political development. And even when studies on modern monarchies are made, Bhutan is always an afterthought. Bhutan is, uh, was, you know, uh, a part of a, the, the greater Tibetan culture that uh, extended all the way from the sort of Zanskar mountain range in the west, Ladakh, and right up to the kind of uh, the northeastern frontier agency or the Arunachal Pradesh state in uh, northeastern India. And Bhutan falls in that track. So Bhutan in the old uh, Choke classical Tibetan language was known as Long Mon Khazi, although I may not be pronouncing it correctly, or the Mon of the Four Approaches, meaning it had four gateways into it. Bhutan's uh, formation, so in this paper, first of all, I would try to describe how Bhutan really became a consolidated state that was distinct from Tibet. Then I would talk about how British grand strategy helped create the political conditions 
due to which a monarchy was able to emerge. Then I would talk about India, China and the international politics of South Asia from 1900s to uh, uh, you know 1950s, 60s and even 70s. And then finally I would talk about the creation of this national ideology and how it led to the otherization of the southern Bhutanese population who are majorly of uh, Nepali uh, you know, descent. They speak the Nepali language, which is different from the Zongkha, which is the national language of Bhutan. So Bhutan in, is uh, said to be established as this kind of unified uh, political uh, state by a legendary lama called Shabdrung Gawang Namgyal. So Gawang Namgyal, uh, he was a member of the Gya family in, in Tibet, and he was a famous lama of the Drukpa Kagyu school of Buddhism. And he uh, was uh, thought to be the incarnation of one of the famous Drukpa uh, monks called Pema Karpo. You know, in, in Tibet, the Trulku system or the system of uh, uh, incarnations was uh, introduced so as to keep <coughs> the incarnations within the family and therefore to have power within certain elite families. And uh, Gawang Namgyal certainly belonged to one of the most elite families called the Gya family. When he was uh, identified as this kind of uh, Trulku of uh, the Drukpa uh, the monk Pema Karpo, there was a challenge made by the son of the Chonge governor's family called Pasam Wangpo. And uh, when the Lamas who are tasked with certain uh, <coughs> spiritual uh, tasks to you know, identify who the real incarnation is, such as presenting things from uh, the, the life before to the young Lama so that he can identify, if he identifies something of his previous life, then he would probably be the true incarnation and many sort of interesting rituals are, ta are, are carried out and it is said that Pasam Wangpo failed those tests whereas uh, Namgyal uh, really passed those tests but uh, nevertheless uh, the Chongye governor was not very happy he thought that because Mifam Tan Pai Nima who was uh, uh, sort of given the responsibility of identifying the Trunku uh, was uh, the father of Shabdrung uh, it was suggested that it was probably a kind of, uh, you know, nepotism that was going on and it was not the right uh, identification. He later challenged it at the Sangpa court and the Sangpa rulers tried to mediate and it is said that there was an interesting uh, legendary story where apparently uh, Shabdrung uh, uh, challenged Pasam Wangpo to a duel and said that if you are as powerful as I am, then use your powers and stir my intestines. If you can do that, then I will accept it. And several such legendary things uh, are to be found in sort of the Tibeto-Bhutanese uh, extended culture, which uh, will tell you the, the kind of, you know, ways in which authority, magical powers, per, uh, politics, spirituality were all kind of linked in this, in, in, in this interesting way. And uh, so after this uh, uh, mediation failed, uh, there was, uh, the mediation partly failed because of the fact that the Sangpa court favored the emerging uh, Gelukpa school of uh, Buddhism and uh, that uh, meant that there was very little patronage given to the Drupa school and the Drupa school was already dwindling and uh, as a result of uh, this what happened was that uh, there was a charge of homicide there was a s small uh, duel between 
one of the Gelupa monarchs, uh, one of the Karmapa uh, sort of uh, uh, monks, and uh, that of uh, Shabdrung while he was returning from the court of uh, the Sangpa king. And as, uh, that gave the king sort of the excuse to ask uh, Shabdrung to uh, abdicate and to return the famous uh, uh, relics of the, the sort of uh, uh, the Drupa monasteries. And the relics are a source of spiritual authority. The relics are a source of political authority. That meant that Shabdrung was going to lose the political authority. He couldn't let that happen. So what happened was that he made he made a way to uh, the southern part of uh, uh, Tibet, which was then not uh, uh, consolidated under any political authority. And uh, it is said that he dreamed of uh, the raven deity Mahakala, and Mahakala said, "Go to the south." And he followed uh, the passages uh, through the river valleys in his dreams. And he finally arrived uh, in, in Bhutan and he said, well, this is the place that I saw in my dream. And this is where I will establish my uh, new kingdom. And he went on to establish a kind of uh, dual uh, system of governance based very closely on the Tibetan system, which has a separate spiritual authority and a separate uh, uh, you know, uh, secular authority. This dual government uh, began uh, with Shabdrung, and Shabdrung's uh, immigration into Bhutan could be seen as the beginning of a proper unified state that was created on a very religio-political basis, on the basis of Drupa religious hegemony. He famously uh, uh, declared that all the people and uh, the spirits and plants and rivers are under the authority of the great Gawang Namgyal. And he sort of uh, wrote that uh, as an edict, and he strategically, uh, uh, you know, set it up in important places along Bhutan for everybody to see that this was now the new uh, authority that was coming about in Bhutan. He he uh, was because of his spiritual capabilities, because of uh, his fame, and uh, because of uh, the fact that he uh, was uh, the undisputed political authority in the Drupa school. He was able to create a kind of uh, national identity that uh, transcended all regional uh, identities and sort of regional you know, powers. The British changed the equation. With the British occupying Assam in 1826, they came in direct conflict with uh, Bhutan. Because the Duars region, which is rich in timber, became a source of conflict. And the British first tried to send several expeditions to gain rights to the timber uh, collection to the East India Company, but that failed. As a result, in 1861, when Sir Ashley Eden went there and was humiliated, uh, the British thought that it was time to finally put this Bhutan problem to rest. They did what the British uh, used to do at that time in South India, they, uh, South Asia. They went and they waged a war in, in Bhutan. They occupied uh, the Duars territory and they signed the Treaty of Sinchula, which made them a protectorate of Bhutan. In the next, so that kind of meant like uh, the final nail on the coffin for the religious authority. And this was in 1861. So Gawang Namgyal's period being 1615, this is 1861. So we see that two centuries have already passed. And finally, the uh, civil war ensures as local governors try to gain power of the situation. And this allows for Ugyen Wongchuk to emerge as the victorious power. He later establishes the monarchy. The monarchy from the very beginning is kind of dealing with this uh, dilemma 
as to how to establish a kind of authority in an already existing religious system which is based on incarnations. The, the monks uh, sometimes pose a challenge to the authority of the monarchs. The first two monarchs had done a lot to centralize authority. The monarchs then realized that the only way that this could be done is by undertaking a vigorous strategy of modernization, by creating a national ideology that is new, but that is at the same time based in Drukpa religious identity, so that there is no credible challenge of the monastic order in uh, challenging the sort of legitimacy of the monarchy. This leads to the, the 1950s when India, China and all these powers are sort of playing in South Asia and they're playing the great game to sort of uh, establish their hegemony over South Asia. In 1962 when India and China fight the first war, Bhutan realized that, uh, and with the occupation of uh, Tibet, Bhutan realized that their future lies southwards towards India. India signs the treaty in 1949. They give tremendous uh, financial aid, aiding the process of modernization. That is always not just pragmatic, but also part of Nehru's grand strategy of spreading a kind of third world scientific modernization in challenging the kind of scientific hegemony that was always present in the West. This then goes on for a while when people in Bhutan realized that they needed a consolidated identity because India at that time was uh, supporting democratization movements in Sikkim, in Nepal. And they had seen that how these democratization movements were affecting the kind of uh, uh, legitimacy to the monarchy. In 75, the monarchy in Sikkim lost the referendum. India, ex uh, India went on and Sikkim uh, was, uh, uh, you know, incorporated into the Indian Union. The monarchs became very fearful of India at that point of time. And the monarchs therefore decided that it was time that proper citizenship laws were laid. At the same time, Bhutan was trying to establish its international relations outside the influence of India. It became a part of the Colombo plan. It became a part of the Universal Postal Union Council. Finally, it got uh, the United Nations membership in the 1970s, late 1970s. In 1980s onwards, and under the fourth Druk Gyalpo, or the Dragon King, a proper national ideology is being institutionalized by acts debated in the national assemblies, Resolutions are being passed to preserve the, the cultural heritage. And preserving the cultural heritage is really thought of as integral to national security. This is then associated with the counting of the first census in Bhutan in 1988. And Bhutan by that time had already been uh, uh, wary of the Nepalese immigration. The Nepalese were immigrating from the south because of the modernization activities and they provided cheap labor. So. Bhutan was a prosperous country, they provided cheap labor, they were migrating. By 1988, it turned out that five districts were majority Nepalese, and the Bhutanese became very fearful. The democratization drive was most prominent in, 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 in the Nepalese because Bhutan State Congress, which was mirrored on the Sikkim State Congress, was primarily led by the Nepalese, who the Bhutanese referred to as the Loth Shampas, or the people from the south, because they were populated mostly in the southern regions of Bhutan. In 1990s, this leads to a kind of conflict, an ethnic conflict that has, uh, you know, that has been triggered by the institutionalization of a policy in 1989 called the Driglam Namza. The Driglam Namza is a kind of code of etiquette. 
It's a code of etiquette that was initially established by Shatrung Gawang Namgyal to be followed by the monks. How you should walk, how you should dress, how you should eat, how you should perform the mm. rituals, and how you should carry out your spiritual as well as secular activities. It was never meant for the general public. It was never meant for a widely consumable kind of, uh, you know, um, moral uh, education. It was not that. It was meant primarily for monastic use. But the monks, uh, but the, the monarchs really transformed this into an ideology of uh, nationalism that was meant for every citizen to follow. Every citizen were expected to wear the national dress. They were expected to learn the Zonka, which was the national language. They were expected to take an oath under the name of the Druk Gyalpo. They were expected to not say anything that was seditious or against the Druk Gyalpo. This we see in the Citizenship Act of 1985, which is the present Citizenship Act, which was later on, of course, uh, amended in 2008 as a de jure imputation of political opinion. We see that in the Citizenship Act in 1958 and then the 77 amendment as well as in 85 when these uh, Citizenship Acts were being re-amended uh, and they were being redrafted that continuously the first condition for citizenship was always that you had to have a Bhutanese parent. It had to be a juice sanguinous citizenship and it had to be initially a patrilinear, uh, now you, you could have a Bhutanese mother through which you could claim citizenship as well. If you are being a citizen by naturalization, which was mostly the case for the Lodh Shampas or the Southern Bhutanese people, you had to take an oath to the king, you had to now say the national uh, language, you had to write it fluently. And even in the 1985 uh, Citizenship Act, there was a mention of fluent knowledge in uh, the Drukpa Bhutanese history and heritage. You had to even take an oath uh, to the Drukpa deity. This was really, really uh, kind of doubling down on the, the <coughs> initial uh, drive towards nationalism that was begun by the third Druk Gyalpo. The third Druk Gyalpo was more or less very liberal in, in the sense that he offered many Bhutanese citizenships. But the fourth Druk Gyalpo took a very conservative turn. Perhaps because in the 1980s it had seen that uh, India was, uh, if, if there was a national security situation, India would intervene. And in, if India would intervene, that would mean loss of sovereignty for Bhutan. And they were very wary about that. And the fourth Druk Gyalpo, uh, Jigme Singye Wangchuk, was a very young king when he ascended to the throne in, uh, in 1972. And 1975, the very first, uh, in the very first few years of his reign, he would have seen the Sikkimese annexation. So he was very wary. He was seeing what was happening in Nepal. The Nepali monarch was, however, uh, 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 you know, able to save his position for a while because of the fact that he had for excellent foreign relations with uh, Britain, with France. But Bhutan did not have that luxury because according to the 1949 Treaty of Friendship with India, its foreign relations had to be guided by India. So he did not have that kind of luxury. So it was really, really trying to maintain its uh, uh, you know, national security, and that really gave them the kind of uh, uh, idea to form this kind of a national ideology, which otherwise the Lord Champas created a refugee situation that created the to the dis, uh, the, the displacement of uh, 175,000 to 200,000. That's a underestimated figure of uh, people of Nepali origin who have flocked to Darjeeling district in India, to Sikkim in India, to Nepal. They are joining Nepali districts, and this has been the case. Well. 
in the final part of my essay, I ponder over whether nationalism is therefore a sacred concept or it does it derive its sacredness from the repository of the Buddhist cultural artifacts. We see that in Europe, nationalism is formed due to the uh, challenge to uh, the established religious order. And with the establishment of the print culture, we see dissemination of that particular uh, ideology. But in Bhutan, when the modernization comes with uh, mass communications, there has been no uh, uh, intellectual tradition of challenging the religious order. Therefore, whatever was there got disseminated. And whatever was there was a Drukpa religious identity that got disseminated. And that was hegemonized as the kind of national culture. And as far as the sacredness of nationalism is concerned, well, we can say that uh, in, in modern Bhutan, with the establishment of a constitutional monarchy, it seems as if uh, the Wangchuks are kind of the new shabdrums of this new religion of nationalism, which all citizens must abide by. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. Thank you.